Well, hello. How are you guys doing? So this is week three of your semester, week two of Crosspoint, which is always so weird. I don't know why they do the semester like they do with kickoff, and you have like this huge start, and then the next week is like, ah, oh, take a break, you know. Just go relax a little bit. Uh, sorry to those of you who came l last week uh, thinking that we were going to have Crosspoint. Uh, I heard this morning that some of you guys were kind of hanging around outside, and so apologies. Uh, it, just as a rule of thumb, any time that we don't have classes on Monday, we're not going to have Crosspoint. Uh, we, we said that from the stage last week. We try to do our best to do that, but yeah. Uh, if you were here, sorry about that. Uh, but I am glad to, to be back with you guys and to get back into the book of Mark. Um, this is going to be a rich season, I think, for us. Um, some of us have grown up in church, um, and we're, we're acquainted with the Jesus story to some level or degree. But I just think there's so much more to it uh, that's beautiful, that's challenging, that's life-giving, that we just haven't quite grasped yet. And then there's others of us who sit here, and this is really pretty new, and we might have different stories about how we ended up through the doors of a church we weren't really planning on it. And I have the privilege of pointing you to a man that we believe has rescued the world. And so last week, what we, or last time we were here, not last week, uh, last time we were together, what we talked about is just the very first verse in the book of Mark. And so uh, if you would, go ahead and grab a Bible. Um, if you don't have one personally, there should be a black book in the pew back in front of you. Um, you can look at the table of contents if you need to get to the book of Mark. Uh, but last time we were together, we just looked at the very first verse. And Mark says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And what we did is we kind of broke it down and we said, this is a proclamation of joyful news that God is victorious and he's exerting his restorative rule through Jesus, the anointed king, his son. And so I kind of walked through and I defined the different words there. You have gospel and you have Christ, you have son of God. We talked about all that's wrapped up in that. But this is a joyful proclamation of God intervening to rescue, to redeem, to save, and to renew. And so Mark kicks off with that one verse, and then he's going to unfold that for the rest of the book. And in chapter 1, we're going to see a lot of Mark kind of building the scene, almost building tension for us. And then at the end of this passage, in verses 14 to 15, we're actually going to hear Jesus proclaim the kingdom of God. And so that's really where we're going to camp out tonight, is talking about the kingdom of God. But before we get into the passage, I just I want to acknowledge that that phrase is a little bit vague. Um, if you've grown up in church, you might have heard the kingdom of God said a ton of times. Uh, but the definition of it might be foggy. Uh, we tend to use it loosely and in different ways. Or, like I said, you might be pretty new to church and kingdom of God is just one of those weird, vague phrases that Christians use. And so... The way that I think it's helpful to think about the kingdom of God is to just say that the kingdom of God, according to the Bible, is God's picture of the good life. It's God's picture of the good life. This is the goal for all human creatures and all creation is God's version of the good life. And he is drawing all things towards that end. 
This is where his will will be expressed through King Jesus over a renewed world where there will be no more sin, there will be no more sorrow, there will be no more suffering. And the people of God are in God's presence, loving one another and ruling over creation as they were intended to be. That's the good life according to the Bible. Simply put, that is the kingdom of God. Now, whenever I put it in that language, the good life, I think that makes it a little bit more relatable because whether you recognize it consciously or not, you have some version of the good life in your mind. Like all of us have this, whether it's very vague or very clear, this picture of the good life that we're striving for. And the rest of life is really geared and oriented at getting us there. And so some of us, some of us, the version of the good life is that the people around us affirm us. So whether that's parents or peers, a boyfriend or a girlfriend, even a coach or a professor, our goal is to feel approved of, loved, and valued by the people around us. And once we get there, things are going to be good. All is at peace with the world, and we feel right. But if there's something getting in the way of that, then we feel anxious. We feel like we need to keep on striving. We don't feel at peace. And we start to begin to behave in a way that we can try to earn the affirmation and approval of those around us. The picture of the good life there is of affirmation of others. But for the others of us, it's a little bit more simple. Um, the good life is just maximizing pleasure. So name, name your poison, whether it's sex, drugs, alcohol, food, even leisure time, right? Binging on Netflix for six hours. Like, there's some, there's some pleasure that drives you, that kind of goes through your mind during the week as you're in class or you're working at your job, whatever you're doing, and, and the thought comes up of, when's the next time I'm going to get to do blank? And I just need to make it until that next point. And there's this belief that, like, once I get satisfied in that way, that's good. I'm at peace. I'm fine. And yet, all of us know that pleasures don't perfectly satisfy. They don't infinitely satisfy. There's that little bit of time where that was nice. You know, I was longing for that. And then shortly after that, we long for more. There's a picture of the good life there, and it's maximizing pleasure. And for others of us, the picture of the good life that we have in our mind is actually pretty perverted. <laughs> um, sorry. This is a struggle for me. Um, the picture of the good life is actually a false picture. It's filled with despair and distrust of God, that he doesn't have good purposes for you, and you forget that he loves you, and you feel alone. And it's really not a good life. It's a lie from the enemy, and you feel stuck in it. And so, there's something that's 
powerful in all of our minds. It's some view of the ultimate goal or it's some false belief about what life is about. And the rest of our life is really shaped by that. And what Jesus comes in to do is proclaim God's version of the good life, the kingdom of God. And he sets it, he clears the stage of all the false versions, and he says, here's God's purposes. Come, be a part. So let's go ahead and dig into Mark chapter 1. And we're going to get to God's version of the good life at the end, but we have some buildup to get there. So let's go ahead, we're going to start and we're going to read through verses 1 through 3. This is where we're going to see that Mark is connecting this story about Jesus back to God's ancient promises. He's weaving it back into the old story that God's been telling all along. Read with me. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And so Mark chooses to start his story in a very specific way. He says this good news about Jesus, the anointed king, this isn't anything new. This is actually woven into what the prophets had always pointed forward to. And so he references Isaiah. Isaiah says, there's going to be a day when one is sent, a prophet, and he's going to come, and he's going to prepare the people of God for God's renewed work. You see, Israel had been living in a dark time for centuries by this point. They felt abandoned by God because of their own sin and their own failure to fulfill his purposes. And all they had to hold on to were the promises that God had given them through the prophets. And so they've been waiting for literally centuries for God to re-enter into their stories, their daily lives in a way that was transformative. In a way that set them free from their own sins, from political oppressors, from sin and suffering in the world. And Isaiah says, you'll know when that's about to happen, when this prophet comes and he prepares the way for God. He's going to be a voice crying in the wilderness. And Mark says, let me show you who that is. His name is John the Baptist. Read verses 4 through 6 with me. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him. In the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. So we see that John is a prophet just by the way that he's dressed. Uh, to wear camel's hair is sort of your social outsider. Um, kind of a rough and tough guy uh, following the Lord. He's in the wilderness. His diet consists of what he can find out there. This shows that he trusts God. He's a prophet. And what he's doing is he's preparing people for a renewed work of God. Take a look again at verse 4. He's proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is part of the role that John plays. He's calling people to confess their sins. So Jews from all over are coming and they're saying, my God, I have sinned against you. 
I have rebelled against you. I have lived as if you were not king. I have let go of your promises. Forgive me. And to repent means not only to acknowledge the wrong, but then to turn to God and say, I want to walk in the path that you are about to move in. And so this is repentance, acknowledging sins and turning and saying, I'm lining up with you, God. And the way that John is calling people to express that symbolically and physically is through baptism. Baptism is this imagery of being laid down into death and being risen again to a new start. And so this old way of life, this old sinful rebellion against God, this is being put behind. This is being put off. And these people are coming up and they're saying, we're ready. We're ready for a new thing. And we want to be a part of it. This is the baptism that John is calling people to, to confess their sins, to get ready for the renewed work of God. But John doesn't just prepare people. He also points forward to one who's going to come. He points forward to one who will pour out the Spirit of God upon the people of God. Let's look at verses 7 and 8. John preached saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John here is sent <clears throat> pointing forward to a man who's stronger than him, who's worthier than him, and who will pour out the Spirit upon people. He will baptize them in the Spirit of God. Something much more significant, much more transformative and life-giving than just being baptized in water. You see, the Old Testament had promises where God was going to do a renewed work, and part of that was he was going to pour out his spirit upon his people. And he uses this imagery of like a dry desert that's dry and cracked and lifeless. And God says, there's going to come a day whenever I pour out my spirit as water on the desert ground, and life will come forth. I'm going to recreate you and draw you into good things that I'm going to do. So John says, that's not me, but there's one who's coming who's going to play that role for you. And immediately, Mark introduces us to who that is. So read verses 9 through 11 with me. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So John is pointing forward. There's come one who's coming who's going to baptize you in the Spirit. He's going to be stronger than I and worthier than I. And immediately Jesus comes on the scene. And he says, I'm going to be a part of this renewed work of God. He actually goes out into the wilderness and he's baptized by John. He's part of the new God movement, right? God's new movement, restoring and recreating. And then as he comes up from the water, a prayer of a prophet is answered. You see, Isaiah long ago looked around and he saw sin in his own heart. He saw sin in the people around him. He saw suffering, death, and rebellion in the world. And this is what he prayed. He said, God, tear open the heavens, break through, and work salvation upon the earth. Please, God, tear the heavens, break through, come down and save. 
And what Mark is saying is that's been fulfilled in Jesus. The sky is torn open. The Spirit of God comes upon the Son of God. And the Father says to his Son, I love you. You're the King that I've chosen. And I'm pleased with you. This is the language that he uses. And so John was pointing forward to one who would baptize with the Spirit. Then we're introduced to Jesus who is baptized with the Spirit so that as he accomplishes his work, he might baptize others in the Spirit. Jesus is not only part of the renewed work of God, he is now the agent who's going to accomplish it. God has torn open the heavens, he's broken through, and he's empowered Jesus, his son, to accomplish his work. And immediately, Jesus takes action. Immediately, Jesus is driven to the wilderness alone by the Spirit to confront forces of evil and darkness. Let's read verses 12 through 13. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This is interesting language to talk about Satan in the wilderness, and then wild animals, what's going on here. Um, It's a common thing to lump these two things together. Demonic forces, wild, scary animals. This is the way that the ancients thought of forces of evil and darkness in the world. And so, Jesus is baptized with the Spirit. He receives the affirmation of his Father, and immediately he goes alone to the place of testing in the wilderness. And it's there that he's confronted with the forces of evil that are at work in the world. Satan. He's surrounded by the wild animals. And as he's struggling in that place, he's supported and encouraged and affirmed by God's messengers, the angels. And so what we see here is, is Jesus is beginning the renewed work of God. God is intervening in Jesus to rescue, to redeem, and defeat evil. He does that first in the wilderness as Jesus is alone. And then we see he comes into public. And he proclaims that God is in their midst to do something new. So read verses 14 through 15 with me. And this is where we'll stop tonight. Now after John was arrested, John is out of the way. Now Jesus steps onto the scene. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so far from being broken or battered or bruised or discouraged or put off his track, Jesus is victorious after his confrontation. He walks directly from his confrontation into public ministry in a place that honestly is full of the outcasts in Israel society. He goes to Galilee. This is where the podunk people are. This is where non-Jews are. This is the not great part of Israel and it's here that he decides to proclaim the victorious good news. Look at it again with me. He says he's proclaiming the gospel of God and this is what he's saying. We could translate it this way. The appointed time is finally here and the reign of God is in your midst. Turn and trust in this good news. Is literally what he's saying. Jesus is saying, all that you've heard about in the past, all the promises of God, all the things that have yet to be done, the time has come for that to begin, for that to be done. 
sin to be defeated, creation to be restored, oppressive forces to be overthrown, all of that is beginning here and now. Your wait is done. Can you imagine what it would be like to be a Jew in the first century, waiting for centuries to hear that? And then here's this man proclaiming that in your midst. And then he says, the kingdom of God, the reign of God, is in your midst. What does that mean? He's saying, because the king is here, the kingdom is here. Where the king is, the will of God, the reign of God is expressed. And so Jesus, the king, steps onto the scene. He's fulfilling his public ministry, and he's saying, the reign and rule of God is here and now. And so you need to forsake the false paths that you're on and just trust in this good news. Follow me. And so what, what does it look like for us to bring that into the modern day? I'm not as cool or as uh, engaging as Jesus. <laughs> um, but what does it mean for us to hear his voice now? To turn from our false paths, to trust the good news of the gospel. The good news of God's reign upon the earth. If we take it back, whether you call it a Christian, whether you call yourself a Christian or not, like I was saying, we're all working with different views of the good life or perversions of that. And those are dictating and shaping our lives. And so like I was saying, some of you, the big thing is affirmation from people. This is the big driving goal and desire in your heart. There's some of you who've been trying to live up to your parents' expectations your whole life. Some of you have never heard from your father or your mother, I love you, and you've done a great job. And because of that, everything that you do is geared towards one day making it there. That burning desire for affirmation from that particular parent is just driving and shaping your life. There's others of you who the people around you, you want them to love you, to approve of you, to affirm you. And so your daily decisions are shaped by that. There have been times where you've done things that you're ashamed of now because it's what the people around you expected you to do. And you did it because you felt like, if I just have their affirmation, everything will be okay. There's others of you who are looking for affirmation in a boyfriend or a girlfriend. There's a desire to be loved and to love. And so you have put all this pressure on this one relationship that this person is going to satisfy you. This person is going to answer the problems in your life. This person is going to make everything good. It's going to make you whole. And what I want to point out in each of those situations is it's taking a good thing and it's lifting it up to be the ultimate thing. It's taking a good thing that God has given, relationships are a good thing, and it's lifting up to the ultimate. And it's saying, this is the ultimate good life. And if I get this, then I'm fine. And each one of those, parents, peers, boyfriend, girlfriend, they're going to not satisfy. They're going to fall short. People are fickle and sinful. And so one moment you might have their affirmation and their approval, and the next, you're not doing good enough. People are going to hurt you. Even the people who you think you need to have approve of you. 
And in that moment, when the biggest goal in your life implodes on itself, what do you do? This is a false view of the good life. And it's to you that Jesus is saying, recognize that. See that. Turn from that. And trust in the way that I'm setting forth. Trust in the way that I am cutting for you by God's power. There's others of you, like I said, who the ultimate good is pleasure. And so your life revolves around some form of pleasing yourself and being satisfied. Food, drugs, alcohol, sex, leisure. And it could be something that that doesn't necessarily constrict the life out of you right now. You might even be able to hide something like a drug addiction or an alcohol addiction pretty well at this point. That's not the point. The point is that as an ultimate goal, this is deceiving you and it is leading you down a path to destruction. Right? Because you, you pursue that pleasure and it satisfies. Shortly after that, you pursue that pleasure again and it satisfies but not as good as the time before. And so you're perpetually thinking, when am I going to get more? And when is it going to be satisfactory enough? And then there comes a point where you turn this nasty corner and what used to please you actually begins to rule you. And it's no longer a fun time. It's no longer about having a a kick on a Friday night or Saturday night. This is what you need now. And this is where it gets harder to hide this. And the addiction, the pursuit of this thing begins to rule you. And it's to you the voice of Jesus Christ says, wake up. This is leading you to destruction. This is a lie. Turn from that and trust the way that I'm cutting for you. Follow me into life. Others of us just need to be reminded that there is a good life. There is the kingdom of God through Christ. And what that's all about is forgiveness of sins. It's about the Spirit of God refreshing and renewing our hearts. It's about the love of the Father being poured out upon sons and daughters. It's about sin, suffering, warfare, these things ending. And so, for those of us who struggle with that thought of just vague despair, losing sight of hope, feeling discouraged and alone, it's to you that Jesus says, wake up. Come and follow me into joy. The things that weigh you down, the things that discourage you and dominate you don't have to. There's hope, there's life, there's peace in walking with Christ in relationship with God the Father. And so, all of us, regardless of where we are, if we find ourselves on a trajectory looking at a false view of the good life, the call is to turn. Let's recognize that this is not only unsatisfactory in the end, it's actually destructive. And so turning says, I confess my sins. I have been on a wrong path. And that's a lie. And it's turning to what God is doing in Christ. 
And to trust that means that you open yourself up to say, this is, this is what I have. This is where my hope is. This is where my joy is. This is where my satisfaction is. And as we're going to go through the book of Mark, we're going to see the kingdom of God unfold in healings, in demonic exorcisms, in unclean people being brought into community and loved. This is the kingdom of God on display. But if I'm just going to speak from Mark 1, the kingdom of God, the reign of God on earth is where you can confess your sins and your shortcomings and find grace. The false paths that you've walked in, the things that you've pursued, the ways that you've been to try to fulfill your desires, you can confess those and have a new start, a clean start. The reign of God on earth is where the Spirit of God can refresh and invigorate and even, for some of you, bring your heart to life for the first time. There are many of you in here, Christian or not, with a dry and cracked heart. And the reign of God on earth is where you can have the Spirit of God come in and refresh and reinvigorate and grant new life. And finally, this is a place where you can be freed from Christ or from demonic forces by Christ. And I know that sounds weird, uh, but I've talked with a number of you who are consciously aware that there are spiritual forces at work against you to destroy you. Some of you are not aware of that right now. And that sounds really weird for me to say. But there is an enemy who wants to see you miserable and ultimately dead. And the reign of God upon earth means that he's shoved out of the way. That he no longer exerts control over you. He no longer dictates your life. And he no longer has the authority to make you miserable. This is the reign of God on earth through Jesus Christ. This is good news. He calls us all to step away from the false paths that we're walking in and to trust him.